Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. My guest is an experienced international journalist who writes spy thrillers, uh, one of my favorite genres of books to read. So Adam Brooks was born in Canada but grew up in the UK. And in the 1980s, he studied Chinese at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London and went on to become a journalist working briefly in magazines before landing a post with the BBC. Adam became a radio producer at the BBC World Service and then a foreign correspondent based in first Indonesia and China and the United States where he now lives. Along the way, he has reported from some 30 countries, including Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, and Mongolia, for BBC television and radio. His first novel, Night Heron, released in 2014 and drew from his life in journalism, his years in China, and his efforts to understand something of what goes on in the world of intelligence. Night Heron would become the first in the Philip Mangan series of spy thrillers, followed up by Spy Games and The Spy's Daughter. Adam, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Now, I stumbled across Night Heron at a used bookstore and have started reading it, but haven't finished yet, so no spoilers. I know this is the first, and I have, I have a way to go to catch up, but, um, but uh, I don't know about you, but I love uh, used bookstores. You know, it's just a great place for me to serendipitously discover new authors. Used bookstores are great. Uh, they are a huge time sink. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they are wonderful, wonderful places. And they are places where you kind of end up stumbling onto stuff that you didn't know about. That's what I love is, is diving into those travel sections, particularly uh, those, those, those shelves on Asia that I'm particularly interested in, where you end up finding books from decades ago that have been completely forgotten and are out mm-hmm. of print, particular memoirs and and um, uh, journalistic accounts from, from decades ago uh, that uh, are so revealing and give you such an enormous amount of material for, for story writing. They, they, they can be fabulous repositories of, of uh, color and texture and experience that you can, you can mine in, in, uh, in fiction and nonfiction. No, that's a good point. You know, we do find out-of-print books there, and, and uh, you know, whenever we search online for books, usually it will bring up the most recent, you know, familiar books that, uh, that are similar to the one that you're looking for. But, yeah, lurking in the, uh, in the old bookstores, like you said, it can be a rabbit hole that sucks in an afternoon for me, but, uh, but it's lovely to do. And, um, and like I mentioned, I love uh, spy thrillers, and the reviews for Night Heron were amazing. Uh, and so congratulations on the whole series. And I know you've written also nonfiction. You have a book coming out next year, so we can touch on that in a moment. But, but first let me ask this. You have a long career as a journalist, having worked all over the world in that capacity. So what led you to pivot from reporting the news to diving into the world of writing about spying and international intrigue? 
Right. Well, you know, I mean, journalists will often tell you that there's a lot of stuff that they encounter in their work that they can't use in their work. So, I mean, as a reporter, uh, going to far-flung places in the world, often to kind of places where, where a lot of stuff is going on, uh, mm. be it repressive regimes like Indonesia or China, or be it you know, zones of conflict like Iraq or Afghanistan, or the strangest places on earth like North Korea. You, know, you, you, you just encounter a lot of situations and a lot of people that um, are odd, frankly, and, 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 and are strange and, and seem extremely unfamiliar. And all that is material that uh, you can't really put in your straight news reporting, mm. um, but you can kind of store it away. And um, the actual uh, genesis of Night Heron, the, the, the novel that you are halfway through, my first spy novel, came with one of these weird incidents where I was... Uh, a foreign correspondent for BBC News in China. And one day, a guy just turned up at the BBC bureau in Beijing and knocked on the door, and I let him in. It was an elderly Chinese man. And he sat down and pulled out of his briefcase um, secret documents. <laughs> uh, wow. They, they weren't terribly secret. They were like at the lowest level of classification in the Chinese system. But these are definitely things that you should not be showing to anybody, let alone a foreigner. And he offered them to me and asked me to take them and said that he had lots more of this sort of stuff and did I want it? And uh, oh, you know, uh, it, this is a big predicament for the reporter. Uh, every mm. journalist will encounter this at some point in their, in their career, you know, when people offer you material that, that's illegal, that you should not have. Um, so I kind of took a quick look at it and then politely declined them, gave them back to him. Uh, the trick in a place like China is never be caught holding, you know, uh, uh, classified material or, or documents you're not supposed to be supposed sure. to have. Wow. So I gave them back to him and sent him on his way, but he was incredibly persistent, and he kept coming back and, and demanding that I accept secret documents from him. And then he asked me to um, introduce him to people at the British Embassy uh, in, uh, in Beijing. And, you know, this guy, in my view, was not for real. This was, this was mm. an entrapment. This was, a, this was what they call a dangle in the business. He was, he was dangling secrets at me to see what I would do. He was looking to see if I was actually an intelligence officer working under cover as a, as a journalist. Uh, and that happens quite a bit in China, and it used to happen in the old Eastern Bloc countries too. So, so I sent him on his way and, and kind of um, didn't think any more about it except that I sort of did think about it and <laughs> thinking about the, the story that, that surrounded him and who was this guy and, well, what if he had actually been for real? What if he really did want to find a way to get in touch with British intelligence and was offering secrets? And how would you spin a story out of that? And over the course of, I guess, a couple of years, you know, I started making notes on a story and I started inventing a character and... Um, and I had never really done, I hadn't re done fiction writing before, and I'd never really thought about fiction writing seriously. But when I started doing this, it just got me in its grip. And, mm. and um, over the next three years, I wrote the first, in odd, odd moments, uh, when I had time, I wrote the first five chapters of Night Heron. And, um, 
and kind of t- it all took off it all took off from there and that's that's the sort of genesis story of the novel yeah now that's fascinating and uh you've worked you know like i mentioned in 30 countries all over the world in some of these different regimes reporting and telling stories and i've not traveled that extensively but the couple of times that i have gone to like i've been to kazakhstan a couple of times in ukraine and some of those countries and so um one of the things that that really struck me is like how the geopolitical scene can be woven into intriguing stories and when you're actually on the ground in some of these places you notice details you like you were saying you you see things unusual things and you think man i wonder if i could use that do um do you find that in your stories, sort of the geopolitical climate of different areas you've visited ends up surfacing in the in the um, in the novels that you're writing? You know, to be honest, it's the only thing I kind of know anything about, really. I mean, having been a journalist <laughs> for all that all that time, uh, a foreign correspondent, particularly, you know, the geopolitics and kind of how you read a. a how do you kind of read a situation, um, a geopolitical situation, is sort of something you get a little bit practiced at. And the spy thriller, what I love about espionage fiction, is that uh, spy stories are a terrific vehicle to talk about geopolitics in a way that doesn't feel like you're talking about geopolitics. So it's a great vehicle for smuggling in ideas, writing a really <laughs> great story that's, that's suspense-based, yeah. but, but, but allows you to smuggle in bigger ideas. So in Night Heron, I tried to smuggle in larger ideas about the way that China has changed in the last few decades, and particularly the way that uh, um, technology and global surveillance has started impacting on geopolitics. All that sounds very dry and techy, and, and I don't want to write techno-thrillers. Uh, that's not what I want to do. I want to write thrillers about people, about characters, about, about people's stories. But as I say, if you're, if you're deft, and I don't know how deft I am, but I tried to be deft and kind of smuggle in some of those larger chunks of... Uh, the moment that we live in, uh, the global moment, strategic moment that we live in, uh, into a story about people and espionage. And espionage allows you to do that because it's all about nation states and people and security and strategy. And in the end, it's about loyalty and betrayal. Uh, spy oh, stories are yeah. about betrayal. They're about what is my contract as a citizen with the state what is my loyalty to the state what do i owe the state in terms of loyalty what's my contract with my employer what's my contract with with the people that i love when am i prepared to lie to the people that i love and my employer and the state and i'm prepared to betray my country and give away secrets to the agents of another country so those huge those enormous ideas about the state and citizenship and loyalty are all reduced to a personal, a very personal story and a personal psychology and a personal set of motivations. Uh, and that's why spy fiction is so brilliant when it's done well. That's why it's such an, it's so good at capturing particular moments um, in the way that the great spy writers have done. I, I really like what you just said, you know, about loyalty and betrayal. And it uh, made me think of, you know, whenever I've, 
taught storytelling at different conferences and writing and so on. And sometimes I'll tell people, you know, readers don't want to read a book about nice people doing nice things. They want to read about conflicted people doing difficult things. And it brought up this whole idea that at the heart of a great story, at the heart of, you know, a great spy thriller, or really any story, is this tension, tension that comes from those questions that you just brought up. So I think that's, I think that's fascinating, especially within this whole field. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I'm not thinking the kind of big five things that you have to get right when you're, when you're writing the commercial novel. Um, uh, certainly, number number maybe two or three uh, is this notion of you call it tension. You could also think about it as as conflict. Often, it's referred to as conflict, but you have to be able to engender uh, this sense of. Um, you know, there's a set of potential outcomes there. Not all of them are good, and your character has to find their way to to a, to a particular outcome against the odds, against certain odds. And you you have to have that tension inherent in the story. It could be tension between characters. It can be tension between a character and their surroundings. Uh, it can be. Uh, tension within a character between conflicting mm-hmm. impulses inside a single character. In my novel, Night Heron, uh, the journalist Philip Mangan, who's the lead character, is faced with a dilemma very similar to the one I just described. What is <laughs> um, and he is offered secrets by somebody that he doesn't know who they are uh, in China. And he has to decide. He's a professional journalist, and he has to decide, what do I do now? Do I take the easy, sensible route, which is send the guy away, give him back his secret documents and never think about this again? Or do I take the risky, reckless, dangerous route, uh, which promises to be very interesting indeed and may lead to great journalistic success? (laughs) And and do I accept these secret documents that tell me these amazing things that nobody knows? So within Philip Mangan, you immediately have there that tension that you're describing, that dilemma, uh, that conflict, and different sides of Mangan's personality come into play, the professional, thoughtful journalist versus the slightly reckless and rather vain uh, adventurer. And, of course, the latter wins out, and he accepts the secrets, and he takes the secrets, and, and the rest of the story begins to unspool from that choice. But like you say, those, those key moments of tension, those t- key conflicts, um, are the moments that sometimes they're referred to as catalyzing moments, aren't they? The, um, the catalyzing moment that, that, that sets a story in motion. Yeah, and yeah, that's great. And so, when you think about your main character, like you wrote uh, Night Heron, and then uh, because fans wanted more and your publisher wanted more, you ended up, you know, developing a whole series based on this character. What what is it about Philip that really seems to resonate with your readers and bring him like that three dimensional, um, d- well, that deep dimensionality, let's say that uh, that great that great characters in fiction embody? Uh, Interestingly, my my publisher did want more, but I had written the novel as a standalone, right? So Uh (laughs) by the end of of Night Heron, when I gave it to the publisher, everything was resolved at the end of the story. (laughs) My publisher said, no, we want a series. 
of novels. So I had to go back and rewrite the entire ending of the novel, ah, um, undo all these resolutions. You know, people who had been killed off got brought back to life. Um, people who had been <laughs> redeemed got unredeemed, you know, and, um, in order to, to lay the end of the novel open to write a sequel. So that was a really useful exercise in structural writing, actually. It really made me think about about how you wrap up a story and how you wrap up a story just enough to leave the reader satisfied, but leave it open enough that you can carry on and write a sequel. Um, and that was, that was tricky. I found that really hard. <laughs> I found it very difficult. But anyway, yes, we went on and did, did, um, I did the second novel, Spy Games, and the third, The Spy's Daughter, all featuring the same kind of ensemble cast of characters with Philip Mangan at the center. What do people like about the guy? Um, people have varied responses to him. Uh, some of my readers I've heard from really don't like him. They think he's a pain in the ass. Uh, <laughs> they, think he's, they think he's vain and annoying and just stupid. And he does make dumb decisions. You know, he's reckless. He makes dumb decisions. There's one moment uh, in, uh, in Night Heron where he has been given a a memory stick, you know, uh, a little, a little USB memory stick, oh, uh, by, by a, by an agent. And he knows that he shouldn't stick this in his computer. Rule number one, if you're in China and people covertly give you USB sticks, do not plug them into your computer. Right. Um, uh, and, of course, he sits there and thinks, what should I do? What should I do? In the end, of course, he plugs it into his computer uh, with all the risks that that presents of, you know, malware and, and sure. espionage and surveillance. Um, and so he keeps on, he makes these decisions that are reckless. And some of my readers really object to that. They don't like it. They like their spies more predictable and more, they like the stories to spin out in, in more kind of, tractable ways somehow. What I've allowed with Mangan is he's allowed to make bad decisions. He's a, he's a human being and he's, he sometimes makes really good decisions and sometimes really not so good ones. And he has a life and he has impulses that don't always readily, you know, allow themselves to be controlled. Uh, and so some people relate to that well and see in him their own kind of human fallibility and their own unpredictability. And some people feel that he is, um, yeah, deeply annoying. <laughs> so so, so we, I've had a variety of responses to him, but, but he's enough of a good character and there's enough to him that he lasts through a single story arc over three novels. He was never going to be the kind of guy who was going to go to come back for 19 novels you know in every yeah. one of them a new episode um in, in espionage fiction there is always this question you know how many times are you going to walk down that dark alleyway you know how many times are you going to accept the secret documents how many times can you can you make this story work and unlike detective fiction you know where the stories are very episodic and that works it's fine you can do that with a police officer uh, you can't do that with a spy. Uh, after a while, all spies are blown, and um, and or they're dead, you know, or they're in prison, yeah. or they have no break. Interesting. You know. I like so, that. So I mean, I've never quite you thought can't, of it. Yeah, you can't just carry on and on. So I had to wrap him up uh, by the end of book three. By the end of book three, yeah, he's he's well and truly done.
Now, you've actually written um, a new book, a nonfiction book, I think, that's coming out, like we said, next year. And I was curious, some of the storytelling tools that – well, actually, this is a broad question because you took some of the storytelling tools from journalism and actually applied those to writing your novel, and then now you've applied that to writing the nonfiction. What are some of the, um, I guess, principles or – strategies that have worked for you telling stories throughout these different venues? Yeah, I mean, that's a question I ask myself every morning. It's, um, it's been a struggle, uh, not going to lie. It's, um, I have found it very difficult transitioning to long-form nonfiction. You might think it would be easier having been a journalist all those years, but... Um, for me, the thing about writing fiction was it was incredibly liberating. I could just sort of dive into my imagination, build the imaginative world that my characters inhabit. And once you're in there, you're able to just sort of, I don't know, for me it feels a bit like I'm just sort of surfing it. You just sort of, you take off, you get in the groove and, and you're in the world and you're away. And, you know, if something's going wrong or a character's not working you can you can choose your outcomes you can you can you know push them off a cliff edge you can <laughs> you can have them disappear you know you can make your outcomes you can craft your world um with non-fiction it doesn't feel like like that at all for me um it's more like kind of i think of it as as being in a mine going going down into a mine where you're hacking away uh, at reality and looking for little nuggets of things that are true, right? Because mm. the nonfiction has to be true. Uh, each sentence has to be, it has to have truth to it and you have to be able to source it and you have to be able to give a footnote and a citation. And you're assembling the story out of pre-existing nuggets of truth that you're kind of mining for in your research. So uh, it feels much more like kind of building something, like making something external to myself. Um, and it's a much more pedantic, slow process, and it's much harder to craft story arcs that work and are fluid and hang together because you've got this pre-existing material. You can't just make it up. Yeah, uh, true. Uh, and and so I have found it very difficult. Uh, I found it very hard. The manuscript goes into the editor in a couple of months, and um, then I will find out to what extent I've been successful or not. <laughs> I have to re rewrite the whole thing from scratch. Um, well, uh, you brought something very fascinating up, and that's this idea of arcs and story and and. Um, and that reality doesn't always fit into a packaged, you know, um, three-act structure or whatever structure you might use for your stories, four acts or seven or five or whatever it might be. But reality just doesn't fit into that. And yet, so it's almost like we are looking for moments to use, uh, you know, you said nuggets or something, to use to tell our story. And so it's you're editing out some things that happen that are maybe just not relevant to that specific story that you're telling in nonfiction. And I find that choice very hard, too. And, and making that choice, what do I put in and what do I leave out? Um, the story that I'm telling is a slice of history from China in World War II. 
Mm, wow. you know, we know very little generally in Europe and the United States. We know very little about what happened in China in World War II. Um, I have a certain set of characters, uh, some of whom wrote memoir, some of whom figure in history books. And I'm trying to bring these individuals to life and tell the story through them. What do I take from their lives that draws out their characters and contributes to the story as against what do I leave out from their lives? Those are really hard choices to make. And when you make that decision, I'm going to include this episode from this guy's life from the 1930s. You know, it directly affects the rhythm and the shape of your whole story and the way that your story moves forward. And uh, I do find it, yeah, I do find it very challenging to decide what to leave in and what to leave out. Uh, And also, sometimes there are just gaps in the story and there's nothing there. There's no material at all. So how then am I, is it justifiable to speculate about what might have happened? You know, uh, is that okay for the writer to do or should I be sticking purely to what I know? Um, These are all, these are all questions that I think bedevil the writer of nonfiction and the biographer. Uh, And I don't think anybody's got really good answers to them. Uh, historians will tell you one thing they'll, they'll, they'll tend to tell you that you should be definitive and stick to what you know and you can establish uh, writers of narrative nonfiction and biographers I think will lean somewhat in the other direction and say no you know what it's fine to speculate if you don't know then let's try and speculate imaginatively and, and reasonably and in good faith about what this person might have been doing given what we know about the context and history of the time uh, but again, finding that balance is really hard. I don't want to be writing a book that's all kind of, perhaps he did this. We can see him perhaps, you know, sitting in the sun <laughs> late at night, blah, 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 when in fact you haven't got a flipping clue what the guy was doing on yeah. that month or that year, you know. Uh, so the storytelling becomes very different. The ingredients to the story are totally different, and the dilemmas that you face in the story are very different too. Point of view is also really hard to establish. This is something I hadn't expected. So it, these are questions that I've loved to wrestle with for, for many years, actually. My master's degree thesis asked that question, how much can you change a story and still claim it's true? My master's in storytelling back in the 90s. But, um, so I love... I love these questions, and I feel like one of the big keys is, you know, matching up the amount of truth that you're, you know, encapsulating or telling in the story with what readers expect. And so, you know, if some people will say based on a true story, based on true events, or whatever they do to to justify any changes that they make, but otherwise, I mean... You know, any dialogue that we use in narrative nonfiction, that case if, is basically almost always representational dialogue. It's what we think might have been said, but it's so difficult to use dialogue, especially because <laughs> we don't always have a record of what was actually said in those instances. That's a really good point, and, th- and that's one I've really struggled with, too, uh, do you make up conversations that you didn't hear? Yeah. In, in the end, in this, in, in this book that I'm writing now, I've, I haven't done dialogue. I've left dialogue out altogether unless yeah. it figured directly in the memoirs that I'm using. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I just don't feel like I can pretend I know what these guys are saying. Um, 
Uh, and I think that's, I, it's not that I always think that's wrong. I think you can. Um, I think you can do that in the right circumstances. I think you can potentially make up dialogue. The problem for me and the reason why I've chosen not to is that I'm talking about nearly a century ago in a foreign country, in a foreign language, in a very strange and alien set of circumstances. So, I mean, what idioms would they be using? Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. It's it's difficult for me even to figure out their motivations (laughs) as individuals uh, at all. So how how would I construct words coming out of their out of their mouths it's it's such a remote the story is so remote from our current experience that i don't feel comfortable trying to reconstruct in that way oh, if wow. you no, were writing something sense. that sure. kind of took place in if you were writing something in you know from 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 where you live in tennessee that took place 10 15 20 years ago where you speak the same language and you've got the same idiom and you know who these people are and where they come from and kind of what their life experiences and what their motivations are i think you'd be fine reconstructing dialogue right i mean do you think that that would be okay i think as long as it's clear you know what your perspective is going to be for readers you know if they're if they're historical uh, historians and they're looking to say, oh, this isn't actually what was said or something like that. But in, in my view, I've always kind of opted toward using dialogue in those instances when I've written nonfiction. And then sometimes I will leave a, um, I don't know what the word is, uh, anyway, a note at the beginning saying, you know, that I've tried to tell this as, as true or as honest as I can. It's based on true events, but, you know, uh, I've changed some things. So it's, yeah. it's a question that, uh, you know, we have to wrestle with, but I feel like your challenge was much greater than any I've had to deal with. <laughs> Transparency like, you like that is you know, really important, isn't it? Yeah. I've, just being transparent in that way. And, and, I think and so. Yeah, and letting people know. This is the contract, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah here's where I'm yeah. coming from. And, and uh, something that I think probably is a good question to for both your fiction and nonfiction is how do you put yourself in the shoes of the characters that you're writing from, whether it's you know, a fictional account, a character that uh, for, for all intents and purposes you've made up, or in this case with some of these you know, characters that you've stumbled across in memoirs and so on, how do you put yourself in their shoes and say, okay, here's what is going through my mind or the plan that I want to put into place or the goal that I have? Oh, God. Um, the short answer is I really struggle to do that. I find it really hard. Uh, the, um, I mean, in fiction writing, I guess, I, 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 I come to know my characters in an imagined world and so i can hear them speak in my head right i mean i kind of i know um i know who they are because i've invented them and sometimes they're based on real people that i've known very well uh uh sometimes they're amalgams of different people um Mm -hmm. and so i can sort of see and feel them kind of move in my imagination i suppose uh, for the for the for the nonfiction, that's been really really difficult. I mean, essentially, I've got written texts that I have to mine for hints as to their characters and uh, hints as to what was going on at the time. Um, if you read memoir very closely and you're careful with it, I think it's legitimate to infer from memoir what people were like. 
mm-hmm. what their characters were like. I have one guy in this book who's clearly a very resilient character. He's quite funny. He gets into all sorts of terrible situations during the Japanese invasion of China in World War II. Uh, and he has a truly, you know, terribly difficult time. But he's a very resilient man, and he finds solutions to things, and he takes pleasure in the moment, and he's um, hard-headed and uh, clear-eyed, you know, and and that comes through in his memoir to me. So, so I'm then able to write him on the page as this resilient, hard-headed guy uh, who has a, a strong sense of humor and a kind of a twinkle in his eye, in contrast to another guy who's written another memoir who's very reticent and very thoughtful, you know, and, and, that, and that comes through from his sense of himself in, in the memoir. So I guess I'm building out from what little scraps I have hmm. from what they've left behind. Uh, and that's a very imperfect I find it a very imperfect way of of working in comparison to the to, to the freedom that fiction writing gives you. Yeah. Now, when you were talking about fiction writing and hearing characters, I, that happens to me too. And people who are not authors might wonder if there's something wrong with us. They say, well, "How can you hear these characters that don't exist?" And I'm like, "Well, they kind of do exist. Like I can totally hear them having this conversation, and then I just dictate it and write or write it down and stuff." So transcribe it. Yeah, I guess. yeah, no. <laughs> But um, do you have spy uh, novels or spy uh, movies that are some of your favorites? Um, and I was just curious what those might might be if you had certain authors that you really enjoyed. Oh, I can talk under wet cement about this, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, well, uh, top of the list will always be Le Carre for me. Um, mm. the, the Smiley books, um, his... For me, his greatest novel was his most autobiographical novel, which is um, A Perfect Spy, uh, published in the, I believe, the, ooh, when was it, like early, mid-1980s? Oh, wow. Um, the story of Magnus Pym. Um, wonderful, wonderful, deeply complex look at the psychology of a spy and the psychology of an agent, and a deep and complex look at the relationship between the agent, uh, Magnus Pym, who is a... Uh, uh, he's a mole in British intelligence uh, for Czech intelligence and beyond Czech intelligence, the KGB. And it's a deep, deep look into how someone gets uh, brought up in a way that equips them psychologically for those big betrayals that we were talking about earlier, yeah. to betray your country, to betray the people that you love. Um, what, what makes a person like that grow grow into it uh and uh, that's just a, a marvelous marvelous novel uh i love those novels i love the work of alan first particularly his early novels dark star all set just before world war ii uh and at the start of world war ii incredibly atmospheric novels about paris and and uh Berlin and Eastern Europe, uh, just before the outbreak of World War II. Uh, and a deep look at the kind of mechanics of how KGB spying was working in Europe at that time. Uh, very, very rewarding, beautifully written, uh, very, very compelling books. Just lovely. Um, go back to those all the time. Um, who else? I love William Boyd. I don't know how many Americans read William Boyd. Hmm. Um, I think I have one of his books on my shelf, actually. William Boyd, he yeah. Terrific kind of crossover fiction, which uses a lot of the kind of techniques and devices 
of espionage fiction, but kind of breaks out of the genre completely into something much more literary. Um, but, but all his books have a kind of espionage undercurrent in them. There's always something, there's always a spy-related theme in them. And some of them are out-and-out -out spy stories and some of them less so. Um, but they all deal with these... Uh, with, with, with the, the, the fundamental assumption of espionage fiction, which is people may not be what they seem. Mm. Um, and there may be things happening around you that you don't know about. <laughs> and um, at the end of his wonderful spy novel, Restless, he, he writes, Boyd writes this fabulous line through the voice of one of his characters where he just says... Um, uh, he, uh, he says, you, you don't have to be a spy to understand that feeling that perhaps tomorrow someone's going to come for you. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, that's so, uh, so, so, and that goes right to the heart of, of the appeal of espionage writing, right? That, 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 that he, he, Boyd understands brilliantly how the espionage novel works and what its underlying feeling of, of this, this sort of psychological threat, this, this sense of uncertainty of just about being alive and being able to interpret and see the world accurately. All the things you use in the espionage novel to generate tension and suspense that we were talking about before. You know, Boyd has got a brilliant handle on all those mechanics. And I highly recommend his novel, Restless, yeah, to, to, to anybody who likes espionage fiction. Oh, fantastic. That's great. I was writing some of these down as you were going through them. <laughs> I'm taking notes. Um, now, some of the spy authors that I've uh, uh, interviewed in the past have mentioned just some interesting or fascinating stories about research uh, for their books. And I was wondering if you had any that popped to mind, any unusual you know, stories from your research that you can tell us and not have to kill us after you tell us. Um, as a reporter, I mean, as a news reporter, particularly working in places like China or, uh, uh, you know, other sort of repressive countries, you do brush up against the intelligence services a little bit. If you've got your antennae up, mm. um, you, you will encounter the security forces of your host country at some point. And you'll also kind of meet a lot of diplomats, some of whom aren't actually diplomats, but are, but are intelligence officers working under diplomatic cover. So you kind of, uh, and it's a favorite game of foreign correspondents all over the world is spot the spook. You know, the, uh, uh, <laughs> journalists love, love doing that. We were always trying to figure out who among the diplomats in Beijing was actually a CIA or officer or an SIS officer or, or whatever. And sometimes you get to know some of these guys a little bit. So you sort of hear a little bit um, how they talk, you see how they carry themselves. You, you, if you're listening carefully, you can get a sense of what's important to them. What I did do in my research was I looked back at um, court papers, particularly FBI indictments in espionage cases. Hmm. And there's a remarkable amount of information in there. If you dig, uh, you can find all sorts of great stuff. Um, there have been numerous cases, a lot of cases, in the last 10, 20 years concerning Chinese espionage in the United States. And a lot of them have gone to court, and the details are all there in their glory in FBI indictments. There was the guy who was found kneeling in a cornfield in Iowa, 
digging up corn seedlings. The FBI put him under surveillance, wondering what the hell he was doing. Turns out he was part of a large spy ring dedicated to stealing genetically modified crops from Monsanto, uh, <laughs> a huge piece of industrial espionage with enormous strategic implications. Um, there was uh, the guy in Hawaii, a retired army colonel, who was a security consultant to the United States military in Hawaii at U.S. Pacific Command, who was 60 years old and divorced uh, and was found swanning around Honolulu night spots with a very attractive young woman of Asian extraction, about 35 years his junior. And the FBI was tipped off and he was put under surveillance and he was found to be passing secrets to her mm. from the United States Pacific Command, including stuff on the disposition of U.S. naval and nuclear assets all over the U.S. Uh, uh, Pacific region. Uh, he was arrested and tried, and he got seven years for that. Mm. Um, this stuff is all there. It's all available. Uh, yeah. And the mechanics of how this worked and what the FBI saw during the surveillance is all there in the indictments. So if you dig away at this stuff, you can get brilliant grist for your spy story uh, through just digging through these official documents. That is fantastic. Like, I've never heard uh, someone take that approach, but I think that's, that's really clever of you to have done that and um, to move in that direction. Well, the, I, I've really enjoyed uh, your stories, your insights, your perspective. Before we close up, I was curious if you have any closing thoughts or encouragement for people out there who might be saying, I want to be a storyteller or a journalist or... Uh, you know, maybe write a novel or something like that. Any lessons you've picked up over the years that you might want to impart to aspiring authors? Oh, God. Um, it's, it's difficult. I don't, you know, I don't, I'm always a bit leery of giving advice because I think one of the things you have to do is find your own way to it. I mean, I think that's an intrinsic part of developing voice is kind of figuring out for yourself how to develop it. Um, I would say I would point back to what you said earlier in our in our chat here about uh, this idea of creating tension within the story. Mm. That is a central part of the machinery of writing a novel, and, and an understanding of how that works is really important alongside the other really important bits of basic machinery. Point of view, very, very important to figure out point of view. Um, character and character development, structure, and, and voice, you know, having enough voice and not too much in, in your writing. If you can, I think if you can get those five basic mechanisms turning over, if you can get the machinery turning over those five basic things, you're kind of on your way to, to, to writing a functioning novel. That would be, that's how it feels for me. It may not feel the way for other people, but that's kind of how it feels for me. I like, you know, saying, okay, here are these super important ingredients that you're going to have to weave together within your story. And, you know, instead of trying to say, oh, this is, you know, two or three basically, you know, secrets of the trade that I've learned and, and might apply to you or might not. But, you know, just to get people back to the idea of character and conflict like you were talking about and and voice and, and telling stories. So, um, so I think that's good. That's a good... It's a good advice to to close with. Now, regarding your books, um, 
Uh, you know, I mentioned I have Knight Heron here. If someone is not familiar with your stories or with your books, would you suggest starting there or more, uh, or more, perhaps with the more recent uh, entries to the series? What would you, where would a good place for people to dive in be? Oh, we should start with Knight Heron. That's the first one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like it when people read them in order. If you, if you can. Yeah, Knight Heron first, and then Spy Games, and then The Spy's Daughter. That would right. be a more rewarding read. <laughs> no, that's great. Now, if people want to um, follow you online, maybe see if you're doing other book talks or, you know, tours or anything with your books, promoting them. Where's the best place to, to find you online? Uh, my website at adambrooks.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at adambrooksword. I'm a bit kind of in hibernation at the moment because I'm just coming to the end of a manuscript. But over the next year, I will be sort of exploding into life, and uh, and my website and and Twitter presence and stuff will will um, will come back. So uh, yeah, uh, catch me on Twitter at adambrooksword, and uh, and watch this space. Excellent. That sounds great. So, Adam, thanks again for, uh, for being here, for your time and uh, your insights. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's been, it's been a great chat. And I want to thank our listeners for, for tuning in for more info about our other guests and to check out um, our other podcasts. Search for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon Music, wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. And don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.